thank you worship team you know congregation I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for a Sunday night in the beginning of November of 1996 I was away from God and uh, man my bride had an encounter with Jesus that Sunday morning and she begged me to go to church I ended up going to church that Sunday night and got radically saved but Sunday nights instantly became very special to me if you will and uh, I love Sunday nights my pastor used to have a rule Pastor Tony and he everybody's pastors the greatest preacher I really believe that my pastor was the greatest preacher he was incredible but he had a rule for Sunday nights he had a rule for just revival services in general And he would say something on a regular basis. He says, three things are going to happen tonight. And he would say this on Sunday morning. He would say it at the beginning of Sunday night. He would say it on Wednesday nights. He'd say, three things are going to happen tonight. 30 minutes of worship, 30 minutes of word, and 30 minutes of altar. If you don't come to participate in all three, don't come at all. And... It sounds strange. There were many times where worship was more than 30 minutes. There were many times where he preached more than 30 minutes. There were many times where the altars flowed past 30 minutes. But it set us up to know that that there was something going to happen and that everything flowed directly into each other right you've ever you've ever seen those those fountains where the water comes up out of the top and then it flows into almost like a chocolate fountain right and it flows into the next level and then into the next level and it just repeats can i say that this week starting this morning but starting tonight three things are going to be guaranteed there is going to be worship there's going to be word and there's going to be altars And my prayer is, now I want you to hear me before I say this. I know that a lot of buffets are closed because of the pandemic, but altars are like a buffet, if you will. And what I mean by that is we are here to present the word. We send you, we we place a menu in in your hands, but it's up to you to come get what you want. It's up to you. Now, please hear me. This is an all-you-can-eat. You know the worst thing about leaving a, a buffet? Leaving hungry. Because there's nobody to blame but you. You could have went up as much as you needed. And a lot of times, and, and, and you, you coined the phrase perfectly, I miss tarrying in the altar. I remember our pastor would be talking about, listen, tonight we're going to tarry in the altar. And I'm like, who's Terry? My mom was Terry, so I was like, okay, <laughs> going to the altar. But I, I remember you would just go, and it wasn't dictated. The, the altars were not dictated by what was happening on the stage. The altars were dictated by what was happening in the altars. And I missed the groan that came from the altars. And there was just this cry and this groan where people, you could... She, she say, said it perfectly. It got better the longer it lasted. And I miss that. I miss altars going, you know, that's how I, I don't know if I've ever shared this from, from this stage before, but you know how I got the first keys of the church? Not because I became on staff. Church service started at six on Sunday nights, Pastor Tony, and, and many times we were in that altar about 7, 7.15 and there was one spot on that side. I don't know if you guys have your one spot in the altars where that's yours. Nope, nobody, this is like Monopoly. This is Broadway. Don't even, 
boardwalk, don't even step on this. But I had this one place, and they would flash the lights back then if you prayed too long. They would just flash the lights really fast. But if your eyes are closed, that meant nothing. So I'd be laying on my face, and, and a, one of the, the deacons, one of the board members, ushers, his name was Richard, and he would come up, and he would kick the bottom of my feet. And he'd be like, Jamie, come on, let's go. And he's like, it's 11 o'clock. But there were times where I just got lost in God's presence. And so the way that I got the keys to the church was he went to my pastor and he told my pastor, you need to tell Jamie that he needs to start leaving earlier. My pastor was like, you want me to tell Jamie that he can no longer pray because you have work in the morning. Why don't you give him keys to the church and teach him how to lock up and put, put the alarm on? And so now I never had to leave. And I would just pray for hours. There were times where I wouldn't come home until two, three o'clock in the morning. I just loved the presence of God. That's where ministry started. It wasn't, people ask me on a regular basis, how, how did you start traveling? And, and I, I just simply have a rule. Pursue Jesus and ministry pursues you. I've never filled out an application. I've never went to Bible school. I've never filled out a resume. I just have simply followed Jesus and pursued him and chased him and opportunities have just presented themselves to me and, and I'm grateful for that. But let me explain something. If ministry stops, my pursuit of Jesus doesn't stop. And so I want to just simply say thank you guys for your giving and your generosity to our ministry. Man, I want to share just, just briefly in this, in this lockdown, one of the things that God gave us the, the awesome opportunity, there is a massive revival that's breaking out in Georgia. They have baptized tens of thousands of people. And the pastor called me uh, back in April and he said, hey, we're writing a book on revival. And he says, we would love for you to write a chapter for that. And so that book will be coming out in, in, uh, in September, early October. But man, that's kind of what we, we had to sow us a very substantial seed into that, uh, that work. And so thank you for your giving because that's what's helping us get that out. And so I appreciate your generosity and God is faithful. But turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Luke chapter 24. I, I have to be honest with you. I, and I don't know if you've ever had an argument or it's not really much of an argument because I always lose. But a disagreement, if you will, with God. And, and, and here's what I mean. There have been times where God just speaks to you and sometimes what he tells you is not necessarily what you want to hear. Does that ever happen to anybody else or am I just the only rebel, stubborn person? I was in my hotel room and I've been writing a bunch of different messages and there was one particular message that I really wanted to preach and I may still preach it this week but I was planning for it this evening because as evangelists you still you do have somewhat of an idea and you kind of get a game plan like I'm going to preach this and I'm going to preach this and this is where I feel like God's leading us and this is where I feel like God's wanting to go and so I had it all planned and I was getting ready to send Pastor Tony my notes and the Lord spoke to me and he said I want you to preach this the message is called the gift of nothing. He said, I want you to preach the gift of nothing. And it, 
I, I, I wrestled with God and I argued with God and I kind of just spiritually rolled my eyes and I, got, I said, God, I don't want to preach that. <laughs> I want to preach this. It's brand new. I don't want to just try to heat up another word. I, God, I want to preach something new. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, I want you to preach this. And I went and jumped in the shower. And I don't know if you've, God is very, a lot of times, and maybe it's just been how it's been for me, but God is very, he's very authoritative, but it's not in a, a loud way, if that makes sense. God has to, there's times where God whispers and I know he's serious. And I'm like, okay, I got it. But it was almost like God began to correct me in the shower. And I got down on my knees in that shower and the Lord began to speak to me. He said, I need you to speak what I want you to speak. Not what you feel, not what you think, not what you want. I need you to speak what I'm telling you to say. And I was like, absolutely. And I began to just repent. God, get me out of the way. Get me out of the way. I get out of the shower and I get my phone is blowing up and I see this, this, this Facebook message and I have to read it to you. And it's from a woman, I haven't preached in this church for about a year, but it's from this woman and she writes this. It says, we really appreciate the work that you do and for coming to FAM. It's a church in Meridian, Mississippi. It's called First Assembly, Mississippi, but they are Meridian and they call it FAM Church. It says, from the time of our daughter, uh, her one-year checkup, our lives have been changed forever. Long story short, she has uh, what the pediatricians called a yeast infection. But it didn't get any better. For 10 months, our daughter was very sick. She wasn't gaining any weight. Her little eyes had dark circles underneath them. She was reoccurring R, uh, MRSA abscesses in her diaper uh, area up to six at a time. A very odd rash in the same area. Chronic, uh, chronic diarrhea and a lot of pain and a few other things. We eventually saw 13 different types of doctors during those 10 months. She was on a ton of different medications to try and make her better. Then we were told the most ter uh, terrible thing a parent can ever hear. There was a very strong possibility that our daughter had a very rare blood disorder. The type of cancer called, and I'm not even going to try, it's LCH. She would need at least a year of chemo. Our hearts sank. We cried a lot. Before all of this, my husband and I went to, a, to church, but weren't 100% dedicated and filled with the Holy Spirit. We just kind of went through the motions and weren't very faithful. During this time, we did uh, everything humanly possible to make our daughter better. We wouldn't stop until we found a cure for her. I made myself physically ill worrying about her. We researched so much about her condition that I was dreaming about it at night. And when I, was awake, when I was awake, it was all that I could think about. Finally, we realized that we were out of human options. There was nothing we could do. Money, doctors, nothing could help our precious child. But God, we, uh, but God, we hit our knees in the most desperate prayers day, uh, prayers day in and day out, praying for her. We cried out to God like we had never done before in our lives. We did this what seemed like forever. Then one Sunday, you came to fam. You were ending your sermon and you stood at the altar and stopped and said, someone has been praying right here in this spot for healing for a stomach issue. 
My husband and I looked at each other and we just lost it. We immediately went to the altar and cried out to, our, uh, to God for our daughter. That night, we came uh, to evening service. There were you and Pastor Bob and the members of the church pray, where you prayed for our daughter. She had been put, the next few days later, she had been put to sleep later uh, for an upper and lower GI scope. They found nothing. After that, all of our daughter's issues faded away. Our daughter is 110% healed. We fully believe God used her to get our attention and make us cry out in faith and turn to him. We will never stop believing that God is the reason our daughter is not only alive right now, but super healthy. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being there that day and taking time to pray for our daughter. This has changed our lives for the better and we are extremely grateful. What was so crazy is the word nothing was all capitalized. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, Jamie, I need you to speak for why I came, not just to this congregation, but I, there may be somebody watching this at home. There may be somebody online. There's somebody in their car that's going to listen to this. And you need to understand what the gift of nothing really is. Think about this. What's more powerful and more loving than God? What's more evil than the devil? The poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it, you will die. Nothing. Nothing doesn't seem like much, but by the end of this message, I believe with everything inside of me, you're going to see not only value in nothing, but you're going to see importance and you're going to see weight. Somebody's been praying for nothing. Somebody's been asking God for nothing. See, Psalms 23 verses 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. A lot, when we look at these scriptures, I want you to hear what I'm saying. A lot of times we look at scripture and we say, what is this scripture saying? But you need to learn how to look at scripture and say, what is this scripture saying without actually saying it? Example is, is when I go to a hotel room, I put a white towel over the TV because I'm not there to watch TV. I'm not there to catch up on my news. I'm there on an assignment, and that is to hear from God. So I put a towel over the TV, and I find the, the Gideon's Bible, and I open it up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what is that scripture saying without it saying it? It says that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, what it's saying without saying it is, cursed are the impure in heart, for they will never see God. And so when I look at scripture, I'm saying, what is it saying? And not necessarily is it saying. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. A shepherd leads, a shepherd guides, a shepherd directs. And then all of a sudden, when you think about a sheep with shepherd, that, that sheep is not worrying about what it's going to eat. It's not worried about what it's going to drink. It's not worried about the, the wolves. It knows that that shepherd is going to lead it and guide it to everything that it needs. It's going to protect those sheep. So when we look at it and it says that, we, it, that I lack nothing, we quote this scripture at funerals on a regular basis or in times of loss, like, listen, God understands he's comforting you when you're going through this time of loss or this time of, 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 of absence or this time of just of confusion or this time of mourning. God understands and he's not going to let you lack anything. But in reality, God will allow you to lack some things. And 
More importantly, that's why Jesus came. Here's what I mean. Flip with me to Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to give you a heads up. Many of you during the message are going to look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. You're going to look at me confused going, what in the world is this man saying? But in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, it says this. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? I want you to look at this. These angels are saying, why are you looking for him? He's not here. Life was given a name that day. Life was given identity. Life was given a character. Life was given a person. It says you're looking for life in dead places and in dead things, and he is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you that while he he was still with you in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told these things to the other eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, it was Mary the mother of James, and the others who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But watch this. They did not believe them, for their words seemed like nonsense. One translation said they were confused. Peter, however, got up and ran into the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves. He went away wondering to himself, what has happened? Church, when was the last time that you walked into into this building or walked into a church building and you encountered God in such a way that you walked away almost confused like what just took place? I've never experienced that. I've never felt what I'm feeling. I've never never heard God like that. I've never... I'm just confused. Peter had walked with Jesus for three years and he walked away going, what in the world is going on? But what's so crazy is, and I want you to hear this. What's so crazy about this is we know that Jesus is not the author of confusion. We know who the author of confusion is, correct? Jesus did not come to confuse. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the answer. Jesus came to to bring conclusion, right? Clarity. But can can I just let you in on a little secret? From the day that Jesus was, before he was ever conceived, he's brought nothing but confusion. Think about this. A 14-year-old little girl has an encounter with an angel, and the angel says, you're going to have a child, and it's going to be God's. Do you think she was not a little confused? 
How about when she's trying to explain? Now, I have had two teenage daughters. One of them's 23, and the other one is 20 years old. If they would have come to me at 14 years old saying, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's God's, Somebody's about to die. (laughs) Let me explain something. The greatest thing about an evangelistic ministry is I can do it in a prison cell. And the difference between a pastor and evangelist is I I will lead you to Jesus before I pull the trigger. My job is to get you to heaven, not back to church. So I'll lead one of my daughter's boyfriends to Jesus and then pull the trigger. And I know places to bury him that Siri doesn't even know about. Just saying. With that all being said, you you think it was not a little bit of a hard conversation explaining that to dad? You think he wasn't confused at all? Like, wait a second, what? How about she was engaged, she was betrothed to be married. How about having that conversation with her future husband? Hey, Hey, Joseph, pregnant. It's not yours. It's God's. You don't think there was any confusion there? As he sought, he wasn't, the rule was that he would bring her out into the city and they would have her stoned to death. They would kill her for adultery or immorality. But he sought to do away with her quiet. He was just going to walk away. And God came to him in a dream. You don't think that was a little bit confusing when Joseph, God speaks to him in a dream saying, listen, it's exactly as she said it is. And it is my, it's going to be my child. And he's going to be the redemption of all the world. And you're going to raise him. You talk about pressure. You talk about like, what? I got to raise the son of God. I mean, it's hard enough just to try to be good as a Christian, to try to be a good example. How do you not want to be? I mean, he's a carpenter. He smashes his finger. Bless God. I mean, I'm just going to be real with you, church. But then all of a sudden, imagine the confusion. This, he's born and an angel shows up. And a star star, uh, begins to shine where there was never a star before. And angels are coming down from heaven above and to earth below. And they're worshiping. Imagine the confusion as wise men come saying, listen, we know who he is. And we've been sent with gifts. The confusion of mom and dad going, what in the world? What's really happening here? And then all of a sudden he, 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 he grows up and he's 12 years old and he goes to this, you know, they're, they're, they're presenting themselves to kind of do a census and, he, and, and, and they leave him in the city and they don't even know he's not there. He's supposed to be with the kids. He's supposed to be with the babysitter. They turn around, he's not there and they backtrack their steps and they find a 12 year old kid blowing the minds of the most brilliant minds at that time. I'm talking theologians. I'm talking about people that have given themselves double doctorate degree ministers who have studied the different scriptures in different languages. And Jesus, a 12-year-old, is standing there and he is he's he's dumbfounding them. He's literally speaking and they're like, he speaks as one with wisdom and understanding. How does this kid talk like that? The confusion that he brought. 
And then all of a sudden, he gets baptized. Imagine the confusion. Let me back up a step. Let me imagine the confusion that when he's at this wedding and his mom comes to him and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he's like, that's not my job. And she says, but you need to do whatever you need to do. She knew that this was an opportunity for him to do something, him to begin to step into why he was there. And Jesus, he said, it is not my time. I must be about my father's business. I love, I love what moms do here. Let me just explain. There's something unique about a mom. A mom will like totally ignore what you're saying and yet empower you to do something greater. He said, it is not my time. I must be about my father's business. And she ignores that and she goes to the servants and says, do whatever he says to do. And Jesus says, go get me a big barrel of water. Get, fill this up. And then take a cup out of the water and take it to the people, the master of the house. And as the master tastes it, he says, wait a second, the confusion. He says, wait, this is the best wine. Usually they bring out the most expensive wine at first and then when people have been drank their fill and they begin to get drunk, then they bring out the cheap stuff. But this is better than the most expensive. This is the unique. This is the greatest. The confusion of this guy going, what is going on? Has no idea. Notice he did not give credit to Jesus. And so the confusion that came, Jesus goes and gets water baptized and, and John the Baptist saying, listen, let me be water baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, I must do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. There's confusion going, wait a second, you are the son of God. You, you, I was told that the one that I saw the dove set upon, the Holy Spirit come upon, that you would be this, you're the son of God, you're the lamb of God that's gonna take away the sins of the world and you want me to be baptized by you? Imagine the confusion. That when a man, a father, comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is very sick. We've tried everything that we know how to try. And instead of her getting better, she's growing worse. But I know that if you'll just come to my house and lay your hands on her and pray for her, she'll be made well. And Jesus says, let's go to your house. And they're walking through this crowd and there's an urgency on this father and he's trying to get Jesus to his house, pushing through this crowd. And all of a sudden, this woman that's been bleeding for 12 years touches Jesus. Now, I have to be honest with you. I, 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 I don't want to study the scripture to try to find out, to try to find error in it. I want to try to study the scripture to try to get reality in it. So what I did is, a few years ago, I wanted to find out what a woman that's been bleeding for 12 years looked like. And who better to know than a blood specialist? So I reached out to a blood specialist doctor, and, and I called him, and I said, I, would, I just am doing this study, and I have some questions. And the lady said, my time's not free, and you're going to have to pay. And it was like $185 an hour. And I thought, man, that's a lot cheaper than Bible school. So I went to her office and I paid my $185 and we sit down and she comes in and she's a little bit smug and she's a very cocky and she sits down and she goes, so what's your, your, your questions? 
I'm a very busy woman. And I said, well, here's my question. I'm doing this study and I, I want to know what a woman that's been bleeding for 12 years looks like. And she kind of gets this, this grin on her face. And she goes, well, let me tell you what a woman that's been bleeding for 12 years looks like. She'd be dead. It's physically impossible for a person to bleed every day for 12 years and live. With every drop of blood is a drop of water. She would be dehydrated. With every drop of blood is a drop of life. She would be dying on a regular basis every day for every, every, every year. She would die. Her, her veins would begin to crystallize. Her muscles would begin to get hardened. Her tendons and, and ligaments, everything with moisture because, because she's so severely dehydrated would begin to harden and crystallize. Just sitting up would waste weeks worth of energy. Her organs would begin to fail. Her skin would become like tissue paper and would just tear. And her bones would become brittle. So just standing would break every bone in her foot. And she says, are you asking because of the myth in the Bible? And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I looked at my clock and that took a whole like three minutes. And I, I realized I paid for an hour. And I'm like, shh. Wow, I've got 57 more minutes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, the first miracle I did was not heal her and stop the bleeding. It was keeping her alive long enough to get her to the point where I could heal her. I wonder how many of you in this place confuse hell every time you wake up and breath enters your body. Because every time that you're alive, every moment that you're alive, every, with every breath, with every beating of your heart, every time you look in the mirror, it's a reminder to hell that it failed. This woman, she presses through a crowd. Let me explain something. This is where the confusion begins to get really intriguing. Everybody at this point has to scream. She has to scream and make her condition known. She would walk through a crowd and scream, unclean, unclean, unclean. And the reason she had to do that is because if you were clean and you were around her and you touched her, that would make you unclean. So what happens when unclean things touch clean things, unclean things? Imagine if you have a white shirt and somebody's with playing in the mud and they come up to hug you. What happens to your white shirt? It gets dirty, but not with Jesus. Jesus came, watch. The unclean, when they touched the clean, the clean became unclean. But when Jesus began to walk the earth, the unclean touched the clean and got clean. And so this woman all of a sudden realized she, she reaches out and touches him because she had tried everything that she knew to try and instead of getting better, she got broke and she had nothing left and she thought to herself, all I have to do is touch him. She reaches through the crowd, touches him and Jesus stops and he said, somebody touched me. Somebody, somebody some, some power left me and the disciples, the ones that should have been touching him, the ones that could have been touching him, weren't touching him. And they said, what do you mean? There's so many people bumping into you and Jesus is talking. And he says, I'm not looking. I'm not talking about somebody just casually brushed up against me. Somebody came looking for something. Somebody came and they knew all they had to do was get to where I was and touch me. But who really gets touched when you touch Jesus? And all of a sudden, the unclean became clean. And Jesus he stops and he said, who touched me? And she knew she couldn't hide her condition. And she said, it was I. And notice these words, Pastor Tony. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. 
How many of you know Jesus is so amazing and so big that he can do two things at once? Where was he going? He was going to a home of a father whose daughter was very sick. And he speaks to her, this sick woman who's been dying basically for 12 years. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. But how many of you know Jesus can be speaking to her while doing something else a long way away? What do I mean? God can be touching your life at this altar while touching your family that's been running from him. God can touch your life while he, he touched my life when he touched my bride's life. And all of a sudden, I can imagine the confusion of a father going, wait a second, we've got to go, Jesus. I'm so grateful for her, but almost a little bit frustrated going, wait a second, you're stopping him from getting to my house. I'm glad you got healed, but my daughter's about to die. I need you to go. And he's urging Jesus to go. And as they're going, he catch, somebody comes and says, listen, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's died. Imagine the confusion that must have been on that man's heart. Imagine the confusion that must have been in that man's life at that very moment. And he looks at Jesus and Jesus says, she's only sleeping. Have faith. So they go to this house and as they go, there's people that are weeping inside the house. They're mourning the loss of this little girl. I can imagine the confusion of this dad going, okay, I know what God said, but I know what's real. I know she's not breathing. I know she's blue. I know that she's not there, but Jesus said she's just sleeping. I know the difference between sleeping and dying, and, and she don't look like she's sleeping. And Jesus tells the people that were mourning and the people that were crying, he kicks them out. Why? Because God had to get rid of what was going to hinder what he was about to do. God got doubt out of the building. Imagine Jesus goes, why are you weeping? She's only sleeping. Imagine the confusion of the doctor that spent years going and he's the one that confirmed her dead. The one that listened to her, her heart stopped beating. The one that said, listen, time of death, 907. And Jesus says, she's sleeping. Imagine the doctor going, uh, you may be a great preacher, you may be a great teacher, but I'm a doctor and I'm telling you she's dead. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks in there. Talitha Kumi, little girl, come forth. And all of a sudden, this girl raised back. Imagine the confusion when Jesus walks out with a little girl that was just pronounced dead. The doctor going, Jesus constantly flipped what was normal to us as humans, and he still does it. How does God take a person that's addicted to drugs, a person that's suicidal, a person that's sick, a little girl, a baby that has been diagnosed with cancer, that they have tests proving that they have cancer, how does God all of a sudden change that? Because that's who Jesus is. His normal is not our normal, but he's trying to make his normal our normal, but it's got to change, so therefore it's abnormal at first. And Jesus is trying to make unclean things clean. Think about this for a moment. We're made out of what? Imagine trying to clean dirt. But Jesus can do it. Watch this. See, one of the greatest fears as a child, one of my greatest fears as a child was that on Christmas morning, I would wake up 
with such high anticipation of the gifts that would be found under the tree for me, but instead only to find that my behavior for the past year was rewarded with coal, or even worse, nothing would be under the tree for me. Constantly, I was reminded I better be good because Santa was watching and making a list, and if I was not good enough, I would be, I would be on the naughty list, and Santa would bring me nothing but coal for Christmas. For every teenager and millennial in this room, that means that Santa takes your phone charger. See, I found myself cringing at the, at the melody of the song, I'm Getting Nothing for Christmas. As the lyrics echoed through my head, I would be reminded of, the, of all the wrongs that I had done. I'm getting nothing for Christmas. Mommy and daddy are mad. I'm getting nothing for Christmas because I ain't been nothing but bad. It seemed to perfectly describe my habitual behavior with such a harsh reality of what I could anticipate receiving for Christmas that year. The fact was, I didn't try to be bad, but that type of behavior just seemed to come so natural for me. And no matter how hard I tried, I always seemed to fall short of being good enough. Then Christmas Day would then fast approach, and no matter how bad I had been that year, I always found gifts of grace under that tree for me. That turned, instantly turned my anticipation into the anticipation of disappointment into delight as I tore away the colorful wrapping paper to reveal each and every present that I so desperately desired and earnestly asked for they had been received and the very thing that I once that, that I once feared I absolutely adore and love and that is getting nothing let me further explain did you know that Jesus actually that God created nothing he created it let me give you proof right here in John chapter one, verses three. It says, God created everything and nothing was created only through him. Let me say it again. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. He actually created it. Let me further explain. What is the greatest gift that you've ever received? What made it the greatest gift? You needed it, you desired it, you desperately wanted it, its purpose, its usefulness, the enjoyment that it brought, nothing, uh, uh, no one else had it, everyone else had it. We sometimes base the value of a gift that we receive on our desire for it, but what if I was to say that the greatest gift that you could ever receive is a direct byproduct of the greatest gift ever given to us is explained in John chapter three, verses 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This gift being something that would confuse us and we'd ultimately complain about if it, if it was given to us to unwrap. I guarantee that you would look at me funny when holding this gift of nothing in your hands. But the truth is that this gift does not need to be wrapped or unwrapped. This gift simply needs to be recognized and embraced because what you do, uh, because what you do not recognize, you'll never acknowledge. But once you recognize the value of this gift, you'll do everything in your power to never lose it. What is this gift I'm talking about? I'm talking about the gift of nothing. See, nothing Nothing as a gift would seem meaningless, cruel, humiliating, discouraging, confusing, frustrating, and even instigating to, to receive. But what if I was to say one of the greatest gifts that you could ever receive from God is the gift of nothing? Let me define the word nothing for you. It means not anything, no single thing, no thing, of no value, not at all, none of anything, not a bit. But here's where I'm really going with this tonight. Absence of attendance. Nothing is absence of attendance. So the ultimate question must be answered. Is nothing actually something? 
I believe that nothing is actually something. I believe it's truly one of the greatest things that God ever gives us to us as his children. And until nothing is taken away, it's hard to comprehend how valuable nothing really is. See, nothing is one of the most precious commodities that wealth cannot buy, wisdom cannot understand, and human ability cannot repair. Did you know that without nothing, your world would collapse? Let me give you some scriptural text. Turn to the book of Job, watch this. Job chapter 26, verses seven. He stretches out the north over empty space and he hangs the earth on. Take away nothing and nothing fall, and, and, and everything falls apart. Watch this. I told you you'd be looking at me like, what in the world is this man talking about? I just sowed into his ministry. He's from Colorado and he's doing other things. So watch what I'm saying here for a moment, church. Jesus came in and he came with something. See, this begins to unfold and that's where we begin to go back and revisit our original text in Luke chapter, or in the latter parts of Luke. And here's what I mean. Imagine the confusion when Jesus starts talking to his disciples and saying, listen, the son of man must suffer many things and he'll be turned over to the hands of sinners they will kill him and in three days he will come back. The very temple that, that is destroyed will be rebuilt and it brought such confusion. They said, "How this has taken years to build the temple. How are you gonna build it back in three days? He wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about a person. He was talking about himself. Imagine it was so confusing that when Jesus starts saying this, one of his closest friends, one of his disciples, Peter himself looks at him and says, listen, that's not of God. Like, you've never lied to us, but that's not gonna happen. We're going to stop that. And Jesus turns to Peter and he rebukes him. Imagine the confusion that these disciples are feeling when all of a sudden everything Jesus is talking about that he's going to die. Imagine the confusion that everything Jesus is doing, the good that he's doing, he's constantly being antagonized. He's constantly being bullied and belittled. He's being threatened. And then watch the confusion magnify. Jesus gets arrested. Peter goes and grabs a sword and he's trying to protect, he's trying to defend Jesus and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus picks up the ear or whatever it is, wherever it is, and he touches the man's ear. Imagine how confused this soldier must have been. Like, do I still arrest him? He just healed me. Like, the pain I was feeling, I no longer feel. But I have a job to do. Imagine, he must have been like, what in the world just happened? They bring him, and they started falsely accusing Jesus. And then they bring him out. Watch the confusion continue. Pilate was even confused. He's like, wait a second, I've been warned in a dream to not even touch this man so let's just let him go. And the people that just a week earlier were crying out, Hosanna, were now crying out, crucify. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let's just let Jesus go. I'll have him flogged, but we'll let him go. No, crucify him. But you don't understand, I was warned. And he says, well, he's yours. I washed my hands of this. Imagine as Jesus who 
let me, let me just go a little bit deep on this. Jesus, to the believers at that time, knew him as the Messiah, as the son of God. Imagine God, he's, Jesus is all man, but he's all God. Imagine God being led, stripped naked and tied to a post while they begin to beat God. As God begins to cry out in pain. You talk about confusion. Wait a second, this is God. How is this happening? How is God allowing himself to be beaten? How is God allowing himself to be captured? How is God allowing any of this to happen? And just like the word that was spoken forth, he didn't do this out of punishment. He did this out of love. It wasn't chains that held him. It was his heart. And the, imagine the confusion. And then they bring him out and they put this post on him. You know what's so crazy? I challenge you to study what happened to the first man with the blood of Jesus on him. He ended up, his sons ended up ministers that walked with Paul. Simon, the guy that carried the cross for Jesus, his sons traveled with Paul. He was the very first person that came into contact with the blood of Jesus. It ultimately shifted his life and the legacy of his entire family. But imagine God can't carry the beam. He needs man's help. And they can't, take him up to this hill and they begin to nail God to a cross. Imagine the confusion. There was so much confusion that on one side you had a, a, a thief who, did, who earned his right on that cross mocking God. If you are God, then save yourself and save us. Yet the other thief is on the other side and he says, have you no fear of God? You know, the first person to recognize Jesus as king, not just Messiah, not just as savior, but as complete authority was a thief. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at this thief and he says, today, yes, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. And then all of a sudden, imagine the confusion because crucifixion, now hear me on this for a second. Crucifixion was not a quick death. It was very painful. See, we, I don't know if you know this, Jesus was actually crucified completely naked. It was ultimate humiliation. It was the ultimate. See, the Romans did it. They didn't create crucifixion, they perfected it. They found a way to make a man desire death. And the way that they would parade them through the street in complete humiliation, it's, not, it's one thing to, be, to want to die because you are physically in pain. It's another thing to watch when people, see, we get hurt when people unfriend us on Facebook. Imagine people screaming for you to die. People at one moment that were your friends. Jesus walks up to that mountain. But see, what we don't understand about the crucifixion, especially with Jesus, is they would grab these great big swords and they would strike against the grain on the beam that was running up and down, causing the, the like splinters to flare up on the cross. And the reason they would do that is because when they crucified a person, 
they would, there was a precise distance that would cause them to hang. And their arms were a precise distance and so were their feet. And so what would happen is it would collapse, it would close off the airways so that they could not breathe. And in order to breathe, they would have to push off the nails that were in their feet against the spikes, literally stabbing themselves in the back. And so ultimately a person would die from suffocation because they couldn't stand the pain. They would be exhausted and they couldn't, their muscles collapsed. And so therefore they're excruciating pain and they would just literally suffocate, couldn't breathe. You want to see love at, at work? Do you know that Jesus said seven things from the cross? And with every time he said something like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he had to push up against the splinters that were stabbing him, ripping his flesh off of him for him to say to forgive us. I wouldn't have done it for me. But Jesus did. Man didn't torture him at that moment. Jesus himself put himself in excruciating pain just so that we could be forgiven. But then he dies. Imagine the confusion just for a moment. I'm closing this down, but imagine the confusion, for, uh, the confusion as it begins to escalate to the point of how does God die? This was supposed to be the redeemer. This is supposed to be the savior. This is the one who comes and rescues us. How does God die? So they wrap him up and they put him in this tomb. And these women are confused because for the last three years, they didn't go where they wanted to go. They didn't do what they wanted to do. They just followed Jesus. The disciples had no idea what to do. They just simply followed Jesus. But Jesus is gone. Our Savior is gone. Our Messiah is gone. Our leader, our friend is gone. And they're just not knowing. They're confused, but they're just lost. So these women just simply want to pay honor to Jesus, but they want to be as close to Jesus as possible. So they prepare these spices and before it was even yet day, before the light, the sun had ever even rose, they're preparing these, these spices and they're going to the tomb. Imagine as a confusion in, escalates even more as, as they approach the tomb, the stone has been moved. Imagine in their mind going, now what? It wasn't just good enough that they killed Jesus and they took him away from us, but now what have they done? And as they walk into the tomb, there's no body. Where's Jesus at? See, when you lose someone, you always want to go to that place where they are or that memory so you can feel close to them. They just wanted to be Jesus where Jesus was, and he's gone. There's nothing there. And these angels are sitting there. And they said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. So what did they find if they didn't find Jesus? Watch. See, if our entire world hangs on nothing, let me explain why you should thank God for nothing. See, what if nothing's wrong at home? 
What if the doctors find nothing wrong with you or someone that you love? What if nothing's discouraging you, nothing to be insecure about, nothing to be disappointed about, nothing troubling you, nothing to be sad about, nothing to worry about, nothing to be depressed about, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be angry about? What if you're bound by nothing, addicted to nothing? What if you have something, nothing hurting? See, you truly have nothing to lose, but once you lose it, you'll never, it's, it's hard to get back and nothing can easily be replaced with something. What do I mean? What if something's wrong at home? What if the doctors find something wrong with you or someone you love? What if something is discouraging you, something insecure about, something to be disappointed about, something troubling you? What is something you're sad about, something you're worrying about, something that you're depressed of, something you're afraid of? You know how many men right now are in children's hospitals that don't really even have much of a relationship with God that are on their knees saying, God, I don't know if you can hear me. I don't know if you're real, but please let them find nothing wrong with my baby. Do you know how many women or marriages around this neighborhood right now are saying, God, let there be nothing wrong. You know how many people right now that don't know where their children are saying, God, let them, let nothing happen to them. There's people that are crying out for nothing and we realize where nothing can be found, watch. The gift of nothing seems like wordplay, but in reality, it's not that at all. However, as the truth further unfolds, our eyes will be made open to a greater understanding of why Jesus came and what he came with. Jesus was sent as a gift from the Father to mankind, as a Savior, as a healer, and as a Lord, as a deliverer. What am I talking about? See, we think of Jesus delivering us from evil, but do you understand delivery does not just mean that he takes things from you, but he brings things to you. What did Jesus bring to us? He brought us nothing. See, here's what I mean. His life began on a, in a borrowed manger. His life ended by being nailed to a borrowed cross. He was buried in and resurrected from a borrowed tomb. The scriptures declare throughout the gospels that Jesus came with nothing and he lived with nothing and ultimately he died and left nothing. First Timothy chapter six, verse seven, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. That day, those women went looking for a body, but what they were originally searching for was not there. They were looking for the living amongst the dead. They were looking for life in dead things and in dead places, but they found nothing in the tomb. However, what they found forever changed their lives and changed our lives. The Father gave us the gift of nothing, and it was delivered by Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a, as a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Nothing is expensive and it was paid for on the cross and then wrapped in the tomb. Nothing was there. See, a lot of people just admire the cross. Let me explain. The cross did not save us. The cross was just the weapon that, or the, the, the tool that God used to open up the hand of hell that was gripped around mankind. It's like a great big pry bar. See, the purpose, what's the purpose of the cross? The purpose of the cross was to rescue mankind, but the product of the cross was to the restoration of mankind. See, the, if you look at this, it says the purpose of the cross was to rescue mankind, the process of the cross was to submit to mankind, and the product of the cross was to restore mankind. All that was done and finished and accomplished in the cross. But what, what was the purpose of the tomb? See, we, we, we love symbolism as people. But what was the purpose, what was the symbolic gesture of the tomb? 
Can I tell you, it's the one place that you can go to this very day. It says the whole earth is full of the glory of God except for one place, and that is what I can find scripturally. There is one place that does not have or contain the glory of God because when he got out, he got out. And that is the tomb. So what is the purpose of the resurrection? If the purpose of the cross was to rescue mankind, then what is the purpose of the resurrection? It was not for God, it was for man. The purpose of the resurrection was not not to rescue Jesus from death or even to release him from the grave, but instead to reveal the restoration of all mankind. Here's what I mean. Jesus did not need the stone to be removed to get out. Do y'all know that? Jesus walked through walls. If you don't believe me, read about after he resurrected, a group of his disciples were sitting in a closed room and it says the doors were locked and all of a sudden Jesus is there. Jesus did not need the stone to be removed to get out. He needed the stone to be removed so that we could get in and what? Get in and find that it was filled with nothing. What are you talking about? There was no sin in that tomb. There was no sickness in that tomb. There was no past, no regret, no shame. No, there, there was no guilt in that tomb because it was filled with nothing. Jesus came and he died and he left us the gift of nothing in a tomb for all men to find. We go to the cross for redemption. But we forget to go to the the tomb for restoration. What are you talking about, Jamie? On a Sunday night, the first Sunday night, November 1996, I walked into a church, Alicia, as in my understanding as the last time I was going to walk into church. My bride had an encounter with God in my marriage. I had packed my bags. I was walking away from everything. And I walked in. I sat at the far left side, out looking out this way, a third row. And during the song, I began to slide over. I didn't realize I was sliding over until I lifted up my head, and now there was about eight feet between me and my bride. I didn't hear one song that was being sung I had my head down. I was doing business with God. And the more I told him I hated him and I wanted nothing to do with him and I was done, the more he embraced me. And all of a sudden, my preacher, my pastor started preaching. And in the middle of him preaching, God spoke to me and he says, are you done? And all of a sudden, the Lord began to show me love like I'd never known before. I had been in church. I had sung songs. I had prayed the sinner's prayer so many times that I became an evangelist so I could lead other people in it. But I'm sitting on the third row, and all of a sudden, the Lord speaks to me, and he says, are you done? He said, I said, God, if you'll change me, change all of me. I don't want to look the same, act the same, talk the same. I don't even want to smell the same. But God, I need you to change all of me because God, I'll do anything and I'll do, tell anyone about you. I didn't realize I was signing up for world evangelism that day. I would have said like, God, I'll email people, I'll text them. <laughs> but when you're desperate, it's amazing what you say. And all of a sudden, the Lord spoke to me. He says, get up and come to the altar. But he's still preaching. Usually you have to be begged for people to come to the altar. 
You don't just get up to the, go to the altar by yourself without being asked unless you're desperate. Without me even knowing it, church, I went to church expecting to get nothing out of it. And I got everything. I went down to that altar, Pastor Tony, and I remember not even looking at the pastor. I just fell on my knees and I began to weep. And I fell on my face in that very place that I visited every Sunday night for about two and a half years. And I began to cry out to God, saying, God, change every single thing about me. God, I want to know you. I want to feel you. I want to experience you. I don't want drug addictions. I don't want alcohol addictions. I don't want pornography. I'm done living this life. God, every part of me is now yours, not just the sin. All of a sudden, I felt some movement on the back of my feet. I turned around, and it was my bride laying on her face, crying out for me. And I stood up to her and I said, baby girl, I need to rededicate my life to Jesus, but I need to rededicate my life. We need to do our vows new because you married a man I don't want you to be married to. I grabbed my brother-in-law, her brother, who had done our ceremony. I said, bro, you got to remarry us right now. So right in the middle of an altar call. And he's like, all right. And he's like, uh, do you? Yeah, I do. Do you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm not lying. I wish I was. It'd be cooler. <laughs> but I went home and I said, God, there's some things I need to get rid of. And I grabbed the alcohol and I began to pour it down the drain. I grabbed the drugs and I began to flush it. I began to rip up pornography. I was so desperate to not do anything that would cause God to leave me that I began to grab, back then we had a 35 inch TV that was as big as this freaking room. It was so heavy and I was rolling it outside, rolling it out. I was so desperate that I grabbed the cable that was coming to the wall that went to the TV and I'm ripping it out of the wall, tearing up drywall. My bride called my brother-in-law and said, he's lost it, he's destroying our house. My brother-in-law showed up 12.30 that night and he said, what's going on? I said, bro, you got to help me. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. And he said, I'll pick you up at 4.30 in the morning. We got prayer tomorrow at five. And I promise you, if you'll seek his face, you'll never go back. And for one year, we spent every day, every morning from five to seven crying out to Jesus. I didn't even know how to pray. But I found nothing that was worth everything. And I wasn't willing to do anything else to lose what I had found. What am I saying, church, as I close this down? Watch. See, nothing was in that tomb that could stop us any further from becoming who God created us to be, sons and daughters. There was no regret, no shame, no sickness, no past, no failures, no mistakes, no behavior, no sin. The price had been paid in full for the gift of nothing so it could be left for all to find. 
That is what the angels were truly stating. What you're looking for is not here. There is nothing here of life. The life that you're looking for is in Jesus. The life that you're longing for is in Jesus alone. Find him and you'll find the life that you desire. But from now on, nothing can stop you. So thank God for his gift of nothing. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10. For having nothing, yet we possess everything. See, I love what the prophet Winnie the Pooh said. He said, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. So today and for all eternity, I am extremely grateful for the gift of nothing that God has given to me. And I'm here to tell you, because of the gift of nothing, no thing can separate us from the love of God, which God has for us in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 says this. For what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our current condition, did you know that while you were at your worst, Christ died? He chose you when you wouldn't have chose you. Embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son. Is there anything that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is now in the presence of God sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not anger, not hunger. Not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. And I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living, nothing dead, nothing angelic, nothing demonic, nothing today, nothing tomorrow, nothing high and nothing low, nothing thinkable and nothing unthinkable. No drug, no passive decision, no regret, no mistake, no shame, no sickness, no disease, no addiction, no depression, no stronghold, no insecurity, no doubt, no anger, no fear, no chain, no pain, no person, no distance, no deception, no rejection, no thing, no one, absolutely nothing can ever get between us and God's love for us because of the way that Jesus, the master, has embraced us. COVID! There's a cure, it's called nothing. I walked into church addicted. I walked into church hurting. I went to an altar, my friend. I didn't even know how to pray. I wish to God I did. I wish there was some fancy prayer that I could say if you said this. I don't even remember the prayers. I just remembered the desperation. I remember the desire, and I laid my life down before God. And I walked in bound. I walked in hurting. I walked in confused. I walked in lost. And all of a sudden, in that tomb experience, what's the tomb experience? The cross is for redemption. The tomb is for restoration. See, you got to go through. You got to go through the cross. But Jesus is on the other side of the tomb. It's a process, church. 
would change. And I don't know when they fell off. But I got up with nothing holding me back. I got up with nothing stopping me. I didn't feel guilty anymore. I wasn't depressed anymore. I didn't need drugs anymore. I didn't need alcohol anymore. The old me was dead and gone. Church, have you had that kind of experience? That's revival. Revival is not preached. Revival is experienced. I feel the presence of God in this room. You feel it. I want you to just close your eyes right now. Somebody came in here looking for some peace. And while we were at lunch and while we were maybe taking an afternoon nap, the Holy Spirit was setting gifts all over this altar. It looks like nothing over here, but man, I I just sense that there's a box filled with peace. Oh, and over here, somebody's been physically hurting, but there's healing at this altar. Oh, and somebody has felt bound and there's a key called freedom at this altar. And it looks like nothing. But if you can just get here, you'll quickly find out that nothing is actually something. And Jesus delivered it. And he left it for all of us to find. Father, I preached what you told me to preach. I did what you told me to do to the best of my ability to try to be faithful and obedient to you. And I may have an idea, but I don't have the complete agenda of heaven. I know that you're wanting to move in the lives of these people. I know you're wanting to move in the lives of this church. God, I know that if me trying to even imagine how big it would be, it would still fall short. You're wanting to save, you're wanting to heal, you're wanting to deliver people that are here and not yet here. God, I pray that we would come face to face with life tonight. Life abundant. Life transforming. Life restoring. Somebody's in this room and your spiritual stomach is growling right now. You're hungry. So here's what we're going to do. This isn't about, there's not going to be an emotional thing with me. 
if there's something that you've been looking for, something you've been bound with, something that's causing you pain, something that's causing you anxiety, something that's causing you fear, something that's causing you worry, depression, something's binding you, something's holding you back. I'm going to ask if you're willing to come and find nothing at the altar. To come find freedom, to come find joy, to come find healing, to come find purpose, to come find direction, to come find peace. So here's what we're going to do, church. If you're needing God to do something in your life and it's supernatural and you can't explain it, but you're desperate for God to move. Maybe it's being forgiven. Maybe it's being cleansed. Maybe it's being healed. Maybe it's being restored. Maybe it's being just simply directed. Maybe it's being filled with the Holy Spirit. What those ladies found in that tomb, you can find today. But you gotta be willing to go and find it. You gotta be willing to go and get it. So all over this place, I'm going to ask if everybody that's willing, I want you to stand up to your feet and I want you to begin to come down to this altar. And I don't care if you kneel. I don't care if you stand. I don't care if you lay on your face. I believe that every single one of us, God's wanting to do something supernatural. Maybe in your job, maybe in your finances. I don't know your situation, but can I tell you, if he can do it in me, he can do it in you. He's not a respecter of persons. Holy Spirit, pour out in ways that they never thought possible right now. God, pour out tonight. It was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross. Come on, church. I'm not asking you don't have to scream for it. It may be just a groan. It may be a cry. It may be a whisper. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put this mic down and I'm just going to begin to join you in prayer and I'm going to begin to pray for you and partner with you and believe that God begins to do what only God can do.